Last weekend, we kicked off this uh, brand new series called Against All Odds. And now we're only three weeks away from celebrating the greatest event that has ever transpired in human history, which is the resurrection of Jesus. And hopefully you've been preparing your own heart as you enter into this season. I know sometimes we just think, oh, it's just this date on the calendar. It's just springtime. It's, you know, it's, it's Easter and we're going to do that. But, but throughout Christian history, people have, have literally prepared themselves for this special time. It's not just another day. It's not just another season. It's the celebration of what Christ accomplished and did for us that brought life. Now, you may have heard the expression uh, for Lent. Some of you come from maybe traditions where you would uh, take that season leading up to Easter as a season of Lent. Um, and the phrase that we often associate with Lent is, what are you giving up for Lent, right? So some people is like, well, I'm giving up, you know, red meat or I'm giving up chocolate, which, man, that's brutal. You know, some, it's like I'm, I'm giving up social media and different things like that. And I heard, <laughs> I heard one person say one time, I'm giving up Lent for Lent. I'm not going to do that, you know. But what, what, we, what we've done is, is we've turned it into, uh, what am I giving up? And that's not what Lent is about. Lent is about removing those obstacles so that my heart can fully unite, unite and fully connect with Jesus. It's like, what, what can I do to prepare my heart to, to move closer to Christ during this season so that as I come to Easter, wow, it's like it's the culmination of everything. So it may be that there are things that you would remove uh, or give up, if you want to say, as a way for your heart to connect. So I know some people who will uh, take, you know, a day or a meal during the week, and they're going to fast during that time, and they're going to use that to connect with Christ. Um, for some, it may be to go on to, like, Bible.com, and you can find, uh, like, a Bible reading that will take you all the way up to Easter. And so you're preparing your heart that way. For some people, uh, it Lent and traditionally is a time of serving and selflessness. And so during this Lent season, you may find ways to get your eyes off yourself and your own needs and instead to, to pour into somebody else, to, to lift up somebody else, to encourage someone else. But I want to challenge you in this time to begin preparing your heart for this Easter season. And yes, it does affect you and your connection with Christ, but God also wants to use that as a way to bless someone else and to invite someone else into this season as well. This is what the heart preparation is all about. And I, I, my guess is that every single one of us in this room has a family member, a friend, uh, a coworker, uh, someone that we go to school with, whatever it might be. And when you think about them, you think, you know, I would love it if, if they made a decision to follow Jesus. That would just be incredible. And you may, you may even think it would be kind of impossible because they're so far away from God. But if you saw in this video and what we talked about last week, we serve a God who's the God of the impossible. And so maybe during this season, you would be putting them on your list and keeping them in prayer, saying, God, would you provide an opportunity for me to invite them to an Easter service, to just come? And you know, most people would come if they just got an invitation. If someone just said, hey, would you would you come with us? Would you come with me? Most people will respond, yes. Some won't, but a lot of people will. But they just don't think of it on their own. But maybe your friend, your family member is just 
kind of subconsciously, they're waiting for an invitation from you. And imagine, imagine what that would look like years from now that someone would say, you know what, I'll never forget Easter of 2023 because that's when I gave my life to Christ. And that's when I began a relationship with him. So I want to encourage you to make that your prayer. Next week, we're going to have some invite uh, kind of cards, and you can take those, and uh, you can give those to some people you know and invite them to come um, this Easter. Now, if you have a note-taking sheet, I want you to get that out. And if you have your Bible, I want you to get that out as well, and I want you to turn to Mark 14. Mark 14. Mark is the second book in the New Testament. And whether you're digital or physical, I want you to go ahead and find that because uh, we're going to read some passages about what Jesus went through. Now, I want to tell you up front that this message today is going to be a little bit different. Uh, it's going to have a little, a little different take on it because we're actually going to go and we're going to kind of historically look at what Jesus experienced and what he went through. And I know that's not my typical way of teaching, but I think it's important that we we kind of begin to see the weight of what he went through and how it shifted and changed maybe what we would normally think of someone in, in leadership, someone who is anointed and someone who is in power, of how they would respond and what they would do. You see, we started this series by, by looking at some of the prophecies about Jesus given in the book of Isaiah. Seven centuries, I think about that, 700 years before Jesus was even born. And last week, we looked at some of the literally mathematical possibilities of, of those all coming true. And the number is just astronomical. And so we looked at a study that was done, a probability study of just eight of those prophecies. And the numbers are just kind of beyond belief. But however crazy the odds were, Jesus fulfilled every single one because, again, he's the God of the impossible. And the whole point of this is not just so that we have this mathematical probability figured in our head of, of what makes the Bible and Jesus true and real, which is great, by the way, but it's also when we look at our own situations, our own circumstances, our marriage, our family, our finances, our school, our addictions, our struggles, our trouble, you know, whatever it might be. And we think, well, I know God could do that, but can he really work in me? Can he really fix what's going on in my marriage and in my home? Is there hope for me in my addictions? And we sometimes aren't sure that that's possible, but when we begin to see the, the scope and the power of the God who, who, who is all-knowing, who is all-powerful, who is all-present, we begin to see that he is the one who can be at work in you and in me because the promises are true and you can count on him because of who he is and how he is. So we begin to look at all of those things and how Jesus made his way to fulfill all of those prophecies on the way to the cross and the resurrection and beyond. So as we mentioned those things last week, we, we looked initially at some of the prophecies and you saw them in the video as well. And that Jesus again fulfilled those. But in the next week, we want to take a few of those and dive a little deeper into them to see the specific prophecy. And here's the other point, how those intersect our lives today. Now, one of the prophecies given about the Messiah was that he would remain silent in the presence of his accusers. And that's what we're going to look at today as we go back into the trials and into him facing those accusers. 
Now you're going to see in these accounts that Jesus a couple times actually did say something, but it was never in defense of himself. He was never trying to kind of sway the crowd or to, to move them or, or, or kind of take his own destiny in his hands and say, no, 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 that's not right. I'm going to defend myself. He didn't defend himself. And that's what the silence is all about. Instead, he, he trusted his father, which is going to be the bigger picture of what we're going to see today. So in Isaiah 53, here, here's what it says. He was oppressed and treated harshly, yet he never said a word. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep is silent before the shearers, he did not open his mouth. Now, when you think of someone who's coming to be the king of kings and the Lord of lords, the Messiah who was prophesied, mythic, man, he's going to rescue us. He's going to overturn our enemies. He's going to lead us from, from this kind of state we're in to a place of freedom and that we're going to be royalty, all those things. And you think, whoa, whoa, whoa the guy who's going to do that? is going to be oppressed and treated harshly. He's going to have accusers come at him, and yet he's going to respond with humility and silence. Man, that just seems crazy. And yet we're going to see that's exactly what Jesus did. Now we know in all of Jesus' ministry, he wasn't silent for his entire ministry. That wasn't the call that was put on him. We actually read his words and we see how he taught and how he challenged and how he brought hope. He confronted religious leaders, sometimes harshly. He spoke out against injustice and pride and hard hearts. He pointed out legalism where it was crushing those who wanted to believe and follow. Jesus was not shy. He did not hold back, he did not shrink back, but he boldly spoke truth and grace together. And we even looked at this a month or so ago about the challenge for us to be bold in our faith and to speak truth along with grace. But there is something different that happened in the arrests and the accusations leading up to the cross. That Jesus didn't rise to excuse, he didn't rise to defend himself, but again, he trusted his father. Now, I want you to look at your own life for just a moment. Being quiet is a challenging thing, isn't it? I, I don't know that we do really well at that. Some of you I know, it's like, you know, I'm just kind of a quiet person. Okay. But there are times when, man, it, it's, just, it's just hard to be quiet, just in everyday life. We even have all kinds of verbal, like nonverbal cues for being quiet, right? Have you ever looked at someone? I know you have and gone, right? We did that to our grandson, inside voice, inside voice, right? Be quiet. Have, has someone ever told you something and they go, hey, listen, you know, this needs to be quiet and we zip our lip, lock it up, throw away the key, right? And then have you ever gone to someone and go, listen, I shouldn't be sharing this, but I just want to tell you, just between us, like, don't tell anybody. It's like, what happened to the zip and the lock and all those things? They just, they just went out the window, right? It's sometimes hard to stay silent, to be quiet, to not share, to not speak, to not go out there. Here's one of the greatest nonverbal quiet things. Some of you have done this. You're on the phone and you get a call. Hey there, how you doing? 
you're pointing at kids or somebody else and you're giving them the ugly mad face like and then your voice still sounds pretty sweet yeah everything's good you know we do that that's it's our nonverbal hey you know knock it off right so here's here's a question how, how well do you do with silence how how easy is it for you to remain quiet. The Bible tells us that we need to be quick to listen and slow to speak. So it's not silence, but it's listening and then slow to respond. It's a processed response. The book of Proverbs tells us that there is wisdom in holding our tongue and just stop what you're going to say. The book of James tells us that this tongue, our, our words, our, our, what we say is, is like this wild stallion and we keep trying to control our, our mouths and our responses and it's really hard. Or sometimes our words are, are like a forest fire and the little spark, the little gossip, the things we say, the defense that we offer, the hurtful words can become damaging and hurtful. The Bible tells us these things. And you know, when we read those things in the Bible, I think most of us go, yep, that's pretty true. We know it because it's hard. It's hard for us. Man, we want to say our piece, whether we do it verbally or whether we're typing something online or an email. Man, we want to we get it out. We want to get our, our point across. Sometimes we just want to tell someone off. And the hardest is when we've been accused of something that we didn't do or we didn't say. And man, we wanna correct someone and we wanna defend ourselves and here's where this gets challenging. This passage and prophecy in Isaiah is not about us. It, it, it's not a command to us. It, it wasn't even a command to, to the Messiah and Jesus. It's just, this is what's going to happen. It was prophetic in doing that. And this passage in Isaiah is not telling us, you be silent when you're accused. That's not what it was. It was forecasting, it was prophesying how the Messiah, how Jesus would respond, and he did. But the question for us then personally is, what do we have to learn in this? What about Jesus' humility and silence in the face of accusation what do we need to learn in this? What, what, what's, what's our takeaway? And we're going to read these trials that were leading up to his crucifixion. And he never begged for his life. He didn't throw himself at the mercy of the court. He didn't have an attorney speak on his behalf. Jesus knew what the Father was calling him to. He knew his, for lack of a better term, he knew his mission. And it and it wasn't about going to, you know, pandering to the politics or the religious elite. He came to seek and to save those who were lost. And his purpose in coming was to show us who God really was, to teach and to do miracles and all those things. But ultimately, and this one cannot be somehow taken out of the mix, he came to die in our place. He came to be the perfect sacrifice, the Lamb of God. And we're going to actually look at that next week. 
So I want you to imagine yourself appearing before court officials and other people are watching and you're being accused of something that could give you the death penalty. And you're there without a defense attorney, without a friend, without your parents. Everyone is against you. And you know you didn't do what you're being charged with. Man, how would you feel? What would you do? How, how would you get yourself out of a situation like that? That's what Jesus was facing. Not once, not twice, but six times in a six-hour period on Good Friday morning over 2,000 years ago. And in all six of these hearings or trials, he remained humble, and he didn't rise to defend himself. And the question is, why would the king and why would the Messiah do that? And what can I learn? So I'm going to give you a couple things. I want you to write these down. The first is this. Against all odds, Jesus remained humble and silent. <coughs> so to help us feel the full weight of this, I want to walk through these six trials. And I want to focus on the last moments in the life of Jesus and put us on location with him the best I can. Now, some of this is history, right? But this is not, I don't want you to just see this as a history lesson. I want you to see this as the evidence that builds up to what Jesus actually did and accomplished. So all of this starts on Thursday evening, which is called Monday Thursday in the Christian Holy Week calendar. And this was the night of the Last Supper. And you've seen the picture before. Go ahead and put that picture up. Um, yeah, there they are. And uh, they're, gonna, they're gonna take, imagine them trying to take a selfie. It's like, hey, you guys all need to get on the same side of the table, right? We're gonna, we're gonna do this together. Famous, famous painting that was done written down in history, and now we get to see them all there and doing that. Looks a bit like they're at a dinner party. But here's what you need to know. It wasn't a dinner party. It wasn't a social event. This gathering was the remembrance of Passover, and it's called a Seder meal, and it's still done today. This is the remembrance of God's deliverance of his people from slavery, of which Jesus is about to do the same thing. Think about this. Back in the time of Moses, when they were in captivity and slavery in Egypt, and God brought all these plagues around in this final one, he said, he goes, I want you to sacrifice a pure and unblemished lamb, and you're going to take that blood, and it's going it, to, the angel of death is going to pass over you. And it was... It was their moment of salvation and freedom from slavery. It was their moment of hope. And Jesus comes to be the Lamb of God, the perfect sacrifice for you and for me. And his blood, his shed blood, made the way for the forgiveness of my sin. So guess what? I can move from slavery to freedom. And I can walk in hope. I mean, it, it, the, the connections between that are amazing. But again, this all took place on Thursday, and afterwards, after this meal that they had together, this Passover time, they, Jesus walked a short distance from the upper room that they were in to the Mount of Olives. And in this Mount of Olives is where Jesus got down, and he asked some of his disciples to come around, and he said, would you, would you pray with me? Because my, my soul is grieved. Like, this is, this is heavy, guys. And so they begin to pray and the disciples fall asleep and Jesus is praying so intently. And it says it's just like 
like drops of blood that are coming out. And he says in that prayer these, these famous words that you probably know. He said, Father, if it's possible, take this cup from me. In other words, he was saying, Father, I, I know what's coming. I know what's around the corner. And man, if there's any other way in this last moment, <laughs> please, can we do it? But he finishes with this. But not my will, but your will be done. And in that prayer, Jesus is, is moving himself to this place of, here's what I would like <laughs> to not go through this, but ultimately, Father, I'm in your hands. It's not about me, but rather it's all about your desires and your will. And it was Jesus' complete obedience and surrender to the will of the Father that allowed him to stand up in front of his accusers and not defend himself because he knew that his father had him. He knew he was walking in obedience to the father. And so as that prayer ended, the soldiers came and arrested Jesus and they take him to a man named Annas. And this is kind of the first hearing or the first trial. Annas was a former high priest of Israel who had been deposed by Rome. And so Annas put his son-in-law named Caiaphas, and you maybe have heard of him in the Jesus story, who is now the high priest, puts him in his place. And so this first is kind of like a pre-qualifying trial, and they bring Jesus to Annas to determine if he deserves to be executed. Annas decides, yes, he does. We need to take this man out. So he hands him over to his son-in-law, the high priest, for the next phase, which brings us to trial number two. And this trial takes place in the same house, but here's what's weird. It's in the middle of the night, which was illegal to hold a trial in. There's no legal representation for Jesus, which was also illegal. And Jesus, if you've ever seen this scene in like Jesus movies or anything like that, it always seems like this you know, this big room and the religious leaders and the high priest are gathering there and they're angry and, you know, they're looking at Jesus and Jesus is standing there by himself. But in actuality, in the house that he was in, Jesus was put, was lowered into the, the cistern, which is where they held water and it was empty at the time. And Jesus is down in this dark pit by himself, no friends, no family, no supporters, he knows that up there, they're making the decisions about life and, and death. And he knows also at the very same moment when he is alone and isolated in this dark pit, that one of his best friends, one of his faithful followers who said, I will never betray you. I will never walk away with you. Jesus knows that at the very same time he's in this dark place, that that friend is out, outside this same house and he's denying Jesus three times. It's the story of Peter. And Peter, brokenhearted, runs away. And Jesus is left completely alone. Now, I want to read this to you because I want you to just see the trial and what was going on with this. So in Mark chapter 14, verse 55, it says this. Inside, the leading priests and the entire high council were trying to find evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death. But they couldn't find any. Many false witnesses spoke against him, but they contradicted each other. Finally, some men stood up and gave this false testimony. 
We heard him say, I'll destroy this temple made with human hands, and in three days I'll build another made without human hands. But even then, they didn't get their story straight. Then the high priest stood up before the others and asked Jesus, well, aren't you going to answer these charges? What do you have to say for yourself? But Jesus was silent, and he made no reply. Then the high priest asked him, are you the Messiah, the son of the blessed one? And Jesus answered, not defending, but speaking truth, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated in the place of power at God's right hand and coming on the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore their clothing. This was a sign of, of grief and, and kind of utter desperation. They tore their clothes to show his horror and said, why do we need another witness? You have all heard his blasphemy. What is your verdict? And they all cried, guilty, he deserves to die. Now this trial ends when it's still dark. So to make it official, a third trial was convened, which was just after sunrise. Only this time it's in front of the Sanhedrin, which is, would be kind of like the Jewish Supreme Court. It's the high council. Turn over the page to Mark 15, verse 1. It says, very early in the morning, the leading priests, the elders, and the teachers of religious law, the entire high council met to discuss their next step. And they bound Jesus, led him away, took him to Pilate, the Roman governor. So they've made their decision. Jesus is condemned to die. They don't really have much evidence, but they're just trumping up some things because they want it done. And they send him off to the only one who can actually perform the execution. They send him to the Roman governor. So they bring him into Pilate, and in Mark 15, verse 2, he says, Pilate asked Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus replied, you've said it which I think is the best answer of all time, right? You said it. <laughs> You're actually speaking truth here. He says, then the leading priest kept accusing him of many crimes, and Pilate asked him, aren't you going to answer them? What about all these charges they're bringing against you? But Jesus said nothing, much to Pilate's surprise. Despite all that's gone on, Pilate finds him not guilty. I don't see anything here, guys. But because he doesn't want to get tangled up in this political nightmare, he sends him off to the king over the Jewish nation. Even though they're under Roman rule, they kept a king, and his name is Herod. And it says this, trial number five, then Herod and his soldiers began mocking and ridiculing Jesus. This is in the book of Luke. Finally, they put a royal robe on him, and they send him back to Pilate. So Herod found Jesus not guilty as well, sends him back for, for the dirty deed. They're going to they're execute him. And Pilate gathers everyone together. And in Luke 23, he says, you brought this man to me, accusing him of leading a revolt. And I've examined him thoroughly in your presence. And I find him innocent. And Herod came to the same conclusion and sent him back to us. Nothing this man has done calls for the death penalty. But the people would not have it. And they scream, crucify him, kill him. These are the same people who were cheering him just days earlier. Blessed is he who comes in, in the name of the Lord. They saw the possibilities of a Messiah and now they're, they're clamoring for his death. And Jesus did not rise to the bait. He didn't rise to defend himself and to go, whoa, 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 whoa. Let me, let me just tell you what's really going on. And all this was prophesied 700 years before. Let me read it to you again. Isaiah 53, he was oppressed and treated harshly, yet he never said a word. 
He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep is silent before the shearers, he did not open his mouth. So here's the question. What does that have to do with me? What does that have to do with you? I mean, we realize it fulfills the prophecy, which in and of itself is no small thing. That's a, it's a huge deal. It brings some foundation to our faith. But maybe the question is, Dave, are you saying that I should never defend myself? If I'm falsely accused of something, are you saying that I should just keep, you know, sit there and keep my mouth closed? And I would tell you, not necessarily, but maybe. The question is often what we're trying to defend. Think about the moments when someone has said something or done something and you feel falsely accused. And you're, and you're going to just kind of ratchet it up and you're going to say your piece and you're going to do it. What are you trying to defend? Your pride? Your image? Your reputation? That false part of you that wants to look good in front of others? wants to feel secure, what are you really trying to defend? What am I really trying to defend when that happens to me? See, this is where it gets a little tricky for us because the bigger question is, do I trust God to be my defender and my rock? Or am I going to hold control? Am I going to make it happen? If it's going to be, it's up to me and, and I, I, I've got to make it happen. Like, where's God in all this? Or do I trust him? There's a moment way back in the Old Testament when the Israelites under Moses are, are going to fight. And it's in Exodus 14. And, and here's, here's what it says. Moses tells them this. Don't be afraid. Stand still and watch the Lord rescue you today. The Lord himself will fight for you. Just stay calm. Have you ever thought that the Lord would fight for you? The Lord would defend you. The Lord would hold you, no matter how crazy circumstances are. Against all odds, write this down for number two, Jesus will fight my battles. Moses tells us to stay calm, that he'll do this, but I know that that's hard. Not only is it frustrating, but more than that, in fact, much more than that, it can deeply hurt, it can be painful. We can, we can wonder, like, like, what's happening here? What's, what's really going on? There's a verse in the book of Psalms that shows that God knows all about what we are walking through. And he cares about what you're experiencing and how you're feeling and the emotions that are running wild. In Psalm 34, he says, The Lord is close to the brokenhearted and he rescues those whose spirits are crushed. The Lord is close to you. 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 He is not far off. He is not distant. Remember how last week we talked about how God's love chases us and pursues us? If you've been wounded or hurt or someone has caused you pain, know this. God is fully aware of it. And he is not dismissing it, but he is close to you. He will rescue you. Now the vindication may not look the way you want it to. I know for myself in those moments when it's like, okay, I'm going to let God fight the battle. It's maybe he's doing some deeper work in me. Here's the challenge. If you tend to be quiet and not say anything, then remaining silent is not a virtue. 
You're just doing, if you're normally a person that sweeps stuff under the rug and go, I don't really want to deal with that, and you go, yes, I'm being silent before the Lord. No, you're actually just kind of chickening out on what he wants you to do. But there are those times when, man, we, we want so to defend our own honor and to stand up and, and to say, no, this, and there are times we need to speak. This message isn't about you should never say anything. The question is, will you trust God's leading? Will you surrender to him and say, not my will, but yours be done? And what that is going to mean sometimes is I need to speak. And other times it will be, I'm, I need to step back. And like, how do you know which one is which? It, it, it's hard. It's following Jesus every single day. But in that is freedom. Write this down for number three. Against all odds, there's freedom in Jesus. Some of my challenging circumstances have enabled me to discover places in me where I have been insecure, where I have been full of pride, where I have abandoned situations where I have run from situations. I mean, I, you know, when we start going into those, those hard places, that's where God wants to teach us and cause us to grow, right? I, I know all of us, what we would really like is life to have no problems ever, and it would just be smooth sailing until the day we die. That's what we want. Can we just be honest about that? We want life to be problem-free, and it's not. And yet, I bet every one of us in this room would say, during times of conflict and crisis and challenge, is actually when I grew the most. It's actually when my faith, the, the roots went down deeper. It's when trust expanded. It's in those challenging times that we learn the most. And you may be thinking here today, David, it would be a miracle in these situations for me to keep my mouth shut and not defend myself. Maybe you need to pray for a miracle. Maybe this is a place of growth and maturity and wisdom and healing. Maybe this is what God actually is inviting you into. See, no one stood up for Jesus. He could have spoken and proved his innocence at any time. But he was being, he was being faithful to surrendering to his father. Man, that's huge. Why would he do that? It's because he knew his father's heart. He knew he could trust his father completely. And think about this. If he proved his innocence and didn't die, what, what was the alternative then? Humanity couldn't pay the price for our sin. It had to be him. He was obedient and surrendered to the will of the father and not his own. And ultimately, Jesus remained silent because he loves us. Think of that, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. And I want you to hear this, paying for your sin and mine was more important than saving his own life. So he trusted his father. Would you pray with me? Father, today we hear this and the truth is God, we sometimes don't know what to do with it. Like, how do we respond in certain situations? Do we speak or, or do we stay silent? Do we, do we speak boldly of truth and grace? Or, or in situations, do we 
step back and, and let you be our defender. Lord, in each of those situations, I know what you're asking of us. You're asking of us to come and surrender our desires, our control, all that, all that we want, and instead pray like Jesus, not my will, but yours be done. And Lord, I pray that would be true of us. That moment by moment, day by day, we would desire your will and not our own. And Lord, I know we're gonna do that imperfectly. And we're gonna take steps forward and steps back. And God, it's, it's, gonna, be, it's gonna be a little messy. But I'm so grateful that in the messiness, you keep inviting us to come close and you remain faithful. Lord, I pray that we would live that out, live out that faithfulness to you. And we pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. Would you stand with me? So as you head out this week, here's my challenge to you. Would you pray that prayer, not my will, but yours be done? throughout this week, and maybe even as like a symbol or a metaphor or a posture of surrender, to even in the quietness of your car, you know, you get to work, you got a few minutes just to pray, Father, not my will, but yours be done. And, and I'm going to challenge you, literally hold your hands out as like this open-handed, I'm yours, God. And watch what God will do in that. Because this week, he may challenge you to speak, to be bold, to be courageous and bring truth and grace. And he may ask you to step back from defending yourself and to be silent. Will you surrender your will for his? I'm praying for you, praying for you this week. Hey, thanks for coming here today. Thanks for being part of what God is doing here at New Life. Be blessed.